Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here, and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. Now, we're going to do a... AMA or an Ask Me Anything. So if you have any questions for Lloyd and Emil, go ahead and shoot them to principleofcharitypodcast at gmail.com or ask them on our Twitter at P of Charity. And we'll read them out and pick uh, their brains on an upcoming episode. Moving on. This is part two of our conversation about whether or not complementary medicine is helpful. If you missed part one, I really encourage you to press pause, go back, and have a listen, as it will contextualize some of the conversation you're about to hear. For everyone else, here's a quick refresher. Integrative medicine is really about understanding the patient um, as a whole, and I'd say that we aim to do that in conventional medicine, but I'm not sure that we're taught how to do it in, in the most effective way. And by understanding the whole patient, we want to know pretty much like the whole matrix that that patient exists in. So you want to know about their past. You might even want to know what happened in utero. You might want to know something about their genetics, which we're learning more and more about. You want to know about what happened to them as a kid. You know, were they sick? Were they well? Did they have trauma? Were they loved? What kind of environment they grew up in? In part two, Lloyd is on the couch with Penny and Norman for an unfiltered conversation. Enjoy. I'm a survivor of stage four cancer, so unusual to be alive. Having lived with lots of surgeons, oncologists, nutritionists, and so forth, I experienced my the medical fraternity, not all, not all, uh, initially as high-end experts, meaning they were knowledgeable about one particular area. For example, my liver or my colon. And that's what they wanted to talk about. They didn't want to talk about anything else. They wanted to talk about that specific area that threatened my life. I got very frustrated when I was feeling deeply anxious about the level of care in the relationship that I was getting, meaning I'd walk into my oncologist, which was owned by a private equity firm. The, you know, I would see 30, 40 patients. I'd be at the chemo ward. There'd be 70 people on at the chemo ward. And Every time I spoke to a surgeon or sometimes a medical practitioner, I knew that I was rushed. I, I, I knew there was 15 minutes and I knew sometimes there were a whole batch of people behind me. By the way, I'd already waited for 45 minutes, uh, got there early, so waited for 45 minutes. And after a while, I realized that I needed to give up hope. I needed to give up hope that I would get anything different from the majority I'm emphasizing the majority of my medical, broad medical team. And when I gave up hope, I did a lot better. When I actually gave up hope that they were going to care for me, that they would remember my name, and I started to understand who they were, meaning 
actually, they were dealing sometimes with 3,000 patients a year maybe. I don't know. They were running around. Uh, it, it was just too hard for them to care. And what I'm really suggesting why I come back to AI is maybe it is the best for patients to give up hope that they're going to get anything from their doctors. Uh, they feel a lot less frustrated. This is a very Buddhist concept around acceptance of the status quo. And if I accept that in one sense, and this might be controversial, uh, that medical practitioners are small business owners, they worried about time at one level. Um, they do care about people's health, but they do worry about time. There are economics involved. Otherwise, they would spend an hour with me, not 10 minutes. When I give up on that, then my reliance is bring on AI as fast as possible. I'm going to get a better result. I'm going to get more concentration. Um, I'm going to get maybe even better data, more evidence. I don't have to run around. I feel more secure. Um, so that's, that's my patient story. And I'd love to hear, Penny and Norman, what your view is. I think that acceptance of what is is not a bad thing. <laughs> uh, acceptance of what is allows you to kind of maybe look for what you'd like in, in another place, like you say. You know, when we have specific expectations, then, you know, inevitably a lot of the time we're going to be disappointed, right? And when we're disappointed, we go into kind of probably a more negative emotional state, which then affects how our body responds to our treatment as well. So I think the I think in your case acceptance was you know really a good thing and and probably you 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 had um, people around you or other resources that could maybe actually fill the gap in other ways. I think getting information uh, through AI can be good. There are there are a number of uh, programs that you, that people can access just online for diabetes and actually turn their diabetes around if they've addressed their diabetes early enough. But my pushback to you here is what happens if I never get the doctor who cares? I just think you've got crap cancer care. That is not acceptable what you've just described. But I'm alive. I've got brilliant medical care. Yeah, but you might, you might, you might have got it somewhere else where you actually had more human care. I could point you in the direction of cancer units where you would not get care like that. When, 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 when women with breast cancer are asked to rate the, how, how expert their oncologist is, they assume that their oncologist, it's like flying a plane. Qantas assumes that every pilot knows how to fly a plane. But when a pilot is taken out of the chair of a plane, it's actually because of their human interhuman uh, connectivity, mm, mm. their communication mm. in, the, in the cabin. And if mm. their communication is crap, their non-technical skills. Non-technical skills are really important. It is not acceptable in a cancer service that people feel isolated, they're not recognized, and they don't know your name. So when, when women with breast cancer in a study were asked to rate how good their oncologist was and how expert they were, it was actually in their non-technical skills. So I would argue your life was pro could probably be saved in any number of cancer centers, but with better doctors who were able to actually connect with you as a person. That is good modern cancer but care. Norman, let me give you the alternative because we are in the principle of charity here. So let me give you the alternative. Well, I'm not feeling very charitable about the story you told me there, Lloyd. I mean, I just well, don't think well, you got good care. Well, I, I do want to end it, sorry, just in case any of my doctors are listening. I, it's not all. Uh, <laughs> but I do want to, I, I do want to test this with both of you. It, it may be that the alternative argument is that People are better technicians when they take emotions out of it, particularly when there are complex issues. Very similarly, 
if I'm flying a plane and the plane is going down, I, I want the pilot only to be focused on the technical issues. Just read, what is it, QF39 uh, by uh, Richard de Crepney about the Qantas flight out of Singapore that almost came down. They were saved by teamwork. They were saved mm. by five senior pilots in the cabin, talking to each other, communicating with each other, having planned what they were going to do, having very intense in skills. They all had the same skills, how to fly the plane, but it was the team that saved the plane. Let's move on to the next chapter, which is the principle of charity. In the principle of charity, as we, as we say in our introduction, we're looking to seek the truth, not win the fight, and to understand the alternative argument uh, before instinctively rejecting it. Penny, if, if, if I started with you, and my question to you was the following, what do you think the strongest arguments are for those who are skeptical around integrative medicine? And, and I'm differentiating that from complementary, but bearing in mind your focus is integrative. Okay, so the strongest argument that people have is that there's no evidence. But the question is, what evidence have they looked at? So it's very easy to be biased at the way you look at evidence and what you're willing to read and what you're willing to not read. We do it all the time. We've done it over many issues. So we often go to the things that are, are most interesting for us and um, and that, that confirm our worldview. And so there, there is certainly much evidence out there. There's a huge academic consortium of integrative medicine in the US that has most of the kind of biggest universities involved who mm. have integrative clinics. The Cleveland Clinic has a big integrative clinic. Veterans mm. Affairs uh, uses integrative medicine. They call it a wellness model and they call it whole health and all the doctors have to be trained in integrative right. medicine. So this isn't like a, a, a fringe thing. This is something that will be moving into the mainstream. And actually, a lot of the things that we have been doing for years are starting to move into the mainstream. And, and, and outside of the skeptics saying reason one is evidence, what, is, what would reason two be, meaning their, their strongest argument against you? Norman brought up that it's for middle class. So my answer to that would be that I see people from all areas of the socioeconomic spectrum. I have people mm. who pack shelves at Woolies at night, right, who come and see mm. me because they feel that it's so important for them to get better. They know they're not going to mm. have to come and see me intensively for a long time, that if we work together, you know, that things will kind of slowly shift around. People are willing to put up a little bit of money uh, to, mm. sub, to subsidise their own healthcare. And maybe one day they won't need to. That would be fantastic. But at the moment mm. they mm. do. And actually most bulk billing practices are going private now because they can't do it anymore. So, mm. it, so I, it is kind of I get the middle class thing, but I also have people in lower socioeconomic groups who come and mm -hmm. see me and then I just work around it. Right. Norman, uh, just going back to the alternative argument for integrated medicine, uh, Penny's highlighted evidence and, and the class issue, which you highlighted earlier. You define yourself in part as a skeptic. If those are the two big reasons, have you got, have you got a third or a fourth around integrated medicine? Where I am most concerned and why there are more and more integrative medicine units, in, particularly in cancer centres, and they exist in Australia as well, is... Mm that it is truly integrated. Where I have problems is where you've got a child with, and it's incredibly rare, you know, where you've got a child who's got meningitis and a chiropractor manipulates their neck um, mm. or somebody abandons care altogether um, to have um, mushed up herbs. And I think so, and, and I wouldn't consider that 
complementary practitioner to be properly trained. They're not really complementary, they're alternative. Mm. And that's and that's rare. And that's where I actually have the problem is that you um, you need to actually bring the two together. And many of our medical mm. issues require that brain body environment interface to actually work well. And and and, mm-hmm. and the language I use for it is different from Penny's, but the reality is you've got to you've got to think about that broader environment and how you're integrating with it um, to to make a difference. The second longest lived people in Australia are elderly Greek Australians, usually first generation, best studied in Melbourne. And if you actually look at why, people say, oh, it's the Mediterranean diet. Well, it's actually not just the Mediterranean diet because the Mediterranean diet is so different around the Mediterranean. It's the Greek island diet, but it's not just the elements of the diet. It's how they cook. So cuisine counts. It comes to what Penny's saying. So what you put in the pot, the extra virgin olive oil, the onions, the garlic, and so on. And... You know, and I'm a hardcore evidence-based person, but when you actually look at what you put in the pot, you get chemistry going there that uh, you cannot buy on the shelf in the pharmacy. You just cannot buy it. The heat that they cook at makes a difference. The freshness of their vegetables, they're growing their vegetables in the backyard or on an allotment. Remember, this is a Melbourne study. Um, Vietnamese Australians are the same. Don't go shopping with an elderly Vietnamese person or an elderly Greek Australian is a nightmare to go sh- grocery shopping with because they're so particular about their vegetables. They eat mm. with family mm. and friends. And here's the other thing, coming back to spirituality, they belong to the Greek Orthodox Church, which has 100 fast days a year. But they're not Michael Mosley fasts. They're days where they don't eat animal protein. So, so they're not intermittent fasting, it's intermittent frugality. Each one of those by itself is not going to solve your problem, but it just comes back to the point that Penny's making is understanding people in their environment and their narrative. And too Mm. often, orthodox doctors who are too narrow or don't have enough time don't actually consider the person's narrative and where they're going. I'm going to move on to sort of other dimensions of the principle of charity. Let me start with you, Penny, and and let me ask you this. what is the most uncharitable thing somebody has said about you or integrative medicine that has turned out to be true? I, I, I'm digging for that. I'm not quite sure. I'm sure there, there, there have – I mean, there's been a, lot, a fair few uncharitable things said. Um, uh, well, I think that, you know uh, – at times I've probably been accused of bias and I think that sometimes, it, you know, certainly there can be bias. Right. Um, and sometimes, you know, if you, you, if you have certain biases, um, uh, they, they usually bite you somewhere and you have to wake up and have a look at them. Um, and so I probably, as a younger doctor, had quite a strong bias um, to use less medication, which I think is, is, is generally a good one. Um, but sometimes I've had to be talked back into um, uh, some medications just because uh, sometimes the evidence changed and sometimes because it's just necessary. Um, I think I've been naturally someone as a person, not just as a doctor, who's, who's always wanted to minimise um, uh, the medication that I offer. And I think that's usually been a good thing and sometimes not been as much of a good thing. And I, I would mm, probably yeah. say I've, maybe I prescribe a little bit more now of some things that mm. I would have in the past. Mm. So I think mm. I think that the biases should always, we should always be challenging our biases. Um, as a young doctor, I would have yep. found that maybe offensive and now I, I, I love it. 
I love to be challenged on things because I think we should be rigorous about what we're doing, mm. what we're thinking and how we're doing things. Um, and I think that we don't do that, that enough as doctors. We don't challenge each other enough or give each other feedback. Norman, how about you? What's the most uncharitable thing somebody has said about you that's turned out to be true? I mean, I think I'm probably more self-critical than I than people actually challenge me of. And I, and I think I would echo Penny in that I think we're late to recognize our biases. But I think that recognizing your own biases is really hard to do, and we're often late to come at it. And it's it can be very dangerous in a clinical situation. And the good thing for the Australian public is I'm no longer in a clinical situation. So I just patients are safe because I'm not looking after them anymore. <laughs> okay, good stuff. Penny, I want to come back to the issue that, you know, Emil spoke about earlier around evidence and integrated medicine. When you think about the integrated medicine practice, uh, you as the president of the Australian uh, Integrative Medicine Association, how comfortable do you think your peers are and the association is to submit you know, some of your, your material, your views to peer review medical journals. Is, is, that, is that something that is culturally done in, in integrative medicine? Well, the Australian Integrative Medicine Association has a peer, international peer review journal that comes out four times a year. Right. Um, and many of our uh, members would be submitting to peer review journals all around um, the world. And there are a number of peer review journals in integrative medicine. Um, so yeah, that, uh, I mean, that's not really an issue, but I think that, you know, uh, at the moment, um, like nat, you can call yourself a naturopath and not actually be a naturopath actually in terms of your training, which is changing. Uh, so the same with integrative medicine, you say, oh, I'm an integrative medicine doctor, but you, you, you can just say you are, it doesn't actually have mm. to mean anything. Mm. Um, I mean, I think we're all integrated integrative in a way in the way we work with other people or not mm. um but uh so what what aima is doing is we're in the middle of getting ready to launch a master's program in integrative medicine um, and the master's program will also uh, slip into a fellowship in integrative medicine which we're launching next month um, mm. and so that pro that process is going to be is pretty rigorous but I think it's really important that we almost like come out of the closet because I think a lot of people have been practicing kind of head down bum up for a lot of years hoping that will no, no one will notice that they're doing things a little bit differently and I think those days are far gone um, and it's really time now that we're very, very transparent about who we are what our training should be. Uh, Norman just staying with the theme of evidence I came across a comment you made around pediatrics and, and it was quite disturbing. And I just wanted to check in with you if that's still your view, because, you know, in the principle of charity, our focus a lot of the time is, is looking for data to back up views. So, you know, you indicated that there was precious little solid ground with respect to, I think, drugs used in children um, that have, they sort of haven't gone through a randomized control trial evidence and they applying what's known about adults to, 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 to children. I think your quote was that you found it quite terrifying. And I just wanted to check, is that still your view or are you being sort of overly uncharitable to pediatric medication? No. So the exception is cancer medicine. So cancer medicine, there's some very good clinical trials. But it's disturbing that a lot of drugs used in pediatrics have not been properly assessed. And we tend to, we tend to apply what we know from adults to children. And uh, asthma is a classic example of that. 
where asthma in children is probably a different disease from asthma in adults. And that's not been properly explored. So there are certain drugs that might work better in childhood than in, than in adulthood. So drug companies don't like doing trials in children. They consider them risky, expensive, smaller market. And so drugs are under um, understudied. The reality is that most of the time it's fine. They do seem to work. And when randomized trials do happen, there are, they, they are supported. But um, studies of pediatric pharmacology are underdone. Luckily, where it counts in cancer, and, and Australia is actually a world leader in this field, is that we, we've, we've got some amazing randomized controlled trials in pediatric cancer. Um, you know, a lot of the time when we are in argument, uh, it is very difficult to listen to the other side. And part of the skill that we try and emphasize in the principle of charity is, is, is how to argue well, how to listen. You don't have to agree. I assume that often as part of a, when the patient uh, has decided to engage with integrated medical team, you have to deal with oncologists, for example, or other surgeons who may be dismissive. How do you deal with that personally? What, what do you do when somebody is dismissive of you to maintain the relationship or attempt to continue to influence them? Well, I, I probably don't try to influence the specialists. Um, I try to be um, upfront about what I'm doing with the patient. Um, most of the specialists um, that I uh, talk to and write to send me letters back with the things that I've got my patients on as well. So they seem to be more over time, more and more inclusive. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't try and convince them of things, but if, I, I certainly want an oncologist to know what any patient's doing and I would take their lead on what they do or don't want patients to take even if I'm not convinced that, that it's dangerous because I think they should definitely be in the lead then. Um, I, yeah, I, I guess I don't, I don't necessarily try and convince them, but if there's a little window of opportunity to give some facts that might, might educate them, I'm very happy to do that. Um, and, and same the other way. I mean, I, I think we just have to be respectful with each other. And sometimes doctors have put us down. So like we had one patient, we had a Chinese medicine practitioner working with us doing her PhD and she was treating a patient who was seeing a haematologist. The haematologist said to the patient and wrote to me saying, there is no evidence for Chinese medicine, like none. So that was really tricky to deal with for the patient, wasn't it? Because she felt she was doing really well and um, there didn't seem to be a contraindication. And so sometimes that's hard to navigate, but I'm finding that happens less and less, really. It's not happening very much anymore. Norman, coming back to you around something you mentioned earlier and your view of yourself as a skeptic, where do you see the skeptic not being productive? When I say skeptic, it's just meaning not, not actually receiving information always at face value and just having a look behind, you know, kicking the tires, looking under the bonnet. Um, and where skepticism, at the extreme of skepticism, you become a contrarian. And often conservative, the conservative press is full of contrarians who've made, a, who've made a career out of being a contrarian, not a skeptic, but a contrarian. And that's where I think skepticism gets confused. Skepticism at its core just means not receiving information at face value, to having a look behind it, and uh, not accepting everything that you hear. But at its most extreme, it's about rejection and negative rejection. And that's contrarianism for the sake of being a contrarian. 
And as I say, there are people in Fox News in the United States and there are people in conservative media in Australia who've made a career out of being a contrarian. But they're not skeptics because they actually, there's a whole group of, there's a whole set of information and knowledge in the world that they reject uh, out of hand. Now, we've spoken a lot on, on this podcast about prediction, advice. I'm in the business of advice. I frequently don't apply my own advice. When, when you think about the advice you're giving around health and ways of living and longevity, which part of the advice you give to others don't you apply personally? And, 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 and where, are you trying, where are you trying to ramp up? Well, I always say one of the first things you learn in medical school is to do as I say, but not as I do. So first thing is I never give advice, ever. My job is to actually present the balance of knowledge as it, as it stands and you can take it or leave it, agree or disagree. And that's what I've done in my last two books is just say, here's what it is. It's what I've done on the health report for years. It's what we did on CoronaCast. Here it is. You don't actually have to listen to what we're saying, but here's some knowledge and you can make up your own mind um, on, the balance, uh, on the balance of evidence. And sometimes drive people nuts that I don't actually give advice because um, that's, what, that's what people are desperate for. But I will give you the balance of, of current knowledge. Um, but to answer that horrible question is, what do you do yourself? So I'm, I have very poor appetite control. So I am really crap on, on my diet. I try to, but I don't eat much red meat in a week. I try to eat a lot of fish and I try to have a lot of wide variety of vegetables and cook in the Mediterranean style, but I overeat. And that's, I put that up to my Jewish upbringing, you know, and that's, um, and, um, you know, and I'm talking, and I'm talking to two, I'm talking to two hosts here from South African Jewish environments who actually understand mm-hmm. that intimately. But but what I do do is a lot of exercise, and that's where I, I, I really stick stick to it. And also, I, I you know I'm a I'm a signed up believer in concrete and wires and things that go ping in healthcare if you need it, but only if you need it. Penny, same question to you. Which advice? Uh, that you give others are you not adopting for yourself personally? So the the thing that's most important when I'm giving advice to my patients or working out with them collaboratively what they're going to do is uh, when I give advice that I don't actually do myself, it just doesn't land as well for my patients. So I found it much easier to help them to make decisions to do things in their life that I'm actually not only willing to do but I'm actually doing myself um, and so I try to keep up to date with my self-care. Am I as good as I'd like to be? Certainly not. I get a bit passionate. I get a bit busier than I would like to be. Um, but I'm very regular with walking, um, with being in nature. I think that's what really kind of resets me. Um, I have my own uh, spiritual practices that, that really help to centre me. I'd like to just turn the focus to the culture within what I'll call the tribe of integrative medical practitioners. Um, how well do you disagree? As, oh, we, dis- we disagree. <laughs> no, and how well do you do it? And, and, and I suppose the second question, you know, when you look at your organisation, what do you think you need to be doing better about how you disagree? Look, we have a fantastic board. When I first came on the board, I think there were 
maybe 15, 16 board members, many who didn't come. So we now have a very tight, very engaged board. Um, and and I've, I tell the board very regularly that to be on a good board with good governance, you have to disagree. You have to bring things up. You have to listen to each other. You have to be willing to, to change the way that you look at things and have very rigorous discussions. And a board that doesn't have rigorous discussions doesn't have good governance. So I encourage that. And when I first came on the board, there were, you know, I felt like there was a lot of, oh, don't say that, you might upset someone. Well, I, you know, we've thrown that. We, we're respectful, um, but we challenge each other. Mm. So from that perspective, I think we work very well together. In the community, it's a big community and a diverse community. It's in Australia and New Zealand. It's different, a little bit different in both countries. We get together for conferences. For the most part, when we get together for our conference once a year, People feel like they're back in their tribe. They feel like they can breathe. They feel like they can talk about things they may not be able to talk about in other mm. environments. So I think yeah. in, in we, we really appreciate that in each other. But it's not to say that we always agree. And, and can I ask you a more personal question on the principle of charity and disagreement? You, your mother, Helen Caldicott, a well-renowned pediatrician, doctor, but a, a quite famous social activist around, you know, the prevention of nuclear war. You know, she looks pretty strident when I look at her on video and I and I hear her. What was the principle of charity like in your family and, and dealing with your mom? Well, she's actually sitting downstairs. I've got her in the bedroom with the door shut <laughs> so that she doesn't make any noise. Look, there's so many things that I could say. First of all, what an amazing uh, role model. So this is a person who was passionate and had a certain amount of naivety um, and just went out and did things that no one else thought they could do. Very opinionated. Certainly every subject came back to <laughs> similar thing. Mm. Um, and so sometimes that was a little bit challenging. Um, and certainly I probably thought I was never going to grow up because of all the terrible things that I heard. Mm. But I, I also witnessed her, you know, having great effect on people. And you, you say strident, but there's also a lot more to it. Um, and I think that uh, if you ever sat in the speech when she spoke for two hours and people don't, don't want her to stop, you'll see how much she was able to touch people. Mm, mm. So I think it is, you know, um, was there always listening to the other side? I think she was on such a mission mm. that sometimes that maybe wasn't as good as it could have been. But, you know, we need all those different types yep. of people to make up that kind of puzzle that, you know, is humanity that takes us to where we need to go. Beautiful. Penny, just on the question of fear, you know, when I listen to some, and I won't call them integrative medical experts, but let, let's call them sort of the alternative medicine uh, view, I listen to them and all I hear is how bad the world is, prescription yeah. drugs, things are falling apart. I mean, what's your view? Are, are these people scaremongers? I think we face a lot of challenges. I don't think medicine is really answering where we're up to with health um, at the moment. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I think we face quite a few challenges. Yeah. But I, I don't think that they're insurmountable. Um, and I just, I don't know, I just think that we've got some work to do. But yeah. I, I think focusing just on the negatives isn't really isn't very interesting. I mean, again, you need to understand which bits aren't working um, and then try to encourage the, bit, the bits that do work, you know, the bits that are connecting, yes. um, the bits that, 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 that help people to feel that they, ha that, that, that they have some control. But not only that, that they're supported. You know, some people say, you know, I had one woman who we'd just tried everything with for years and I said, why do you keep coming to me? You know, I feel like I've hardly made any difference. And she said, because you'll keep trying. 
Right. So that's the you know? relationship you were speaking about. And, yeah. and and I think on that note, the, the one area that you, you refer to particularly is around mental health. I mean, there, there have been great advances in, in the area of physical treatment, but mental health seems to be a long way off. And on that note, I, I want to thank both Penny and Norman. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. That was really, that was fascinating. A reminder, if you have any questions for Lloyd and Emil, Send them to principleofcharitypodcast at gmail.com or ask on our Twitter. See you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.